Well, hey, everybody, welcome to Grace Church. My name is Bob Bryce, and I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad to have you joining us today. When I worked for a large window company that shall remain nameless, I was the operations manager at, at one of the sales branches in Salt Lake City. And this was an independently owned business, and the owner had, let's say, uh, bitten more off than he could chew. Uh, he was deeply in debt to the main corporation, and, and the main corporation decided that they just wanted to buy this guy out and, and just run it themselves instead. So they all came out to Salt Lake City, and, and they lined us all up, uh, all of us employees, and one by one, they called us into the office for a meeting. And the, the purpose now of this meeting was so that we could each tell them how rotten the owner was and, and, and how he'd messed everything up and how he was totally incompetent and all, all that kind of thing. And so when it was my turn, they asked me to come in and basically asked me to, to rake this guy over the coals. Well, I said, you know, Mike has always kept his promises and his agreements with me. I've never gone without a paycheck. Has he made some mistakes? Yes, absolutely. But, but show me somebody who hasn't. But is he a bad person? Is he all those things you just said? No, I, I don't believe that for a minute. And I'm, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to agree to it. Well, that was the end of the line for me. They told me that while they had very much hoped for me to continue working with them, it was, it was clear that I just I wouldn't be a good fit for the new team that they were building. And so I had to go. So my question is this, whose will was done in this case? Whose will was done? Because I believe that I did the right thing. I mean, after all, I kept the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against someone else. So I, I told the truth and I still got fired. So the question is, was, was God's will done in this particular case? Or maybe I can ask it a different way. If I followed God's command and I still got fired, then did God work against his own will in this case? Hmm. Well, then maybe it was just the company's will that was being done. Maybe it was, it was just simply their choice, and that's all there is to it. It doesn't mean anything more. But, but then again, at the same time, there's this rub because if, if, I, honor, if I honored God's command and they still fired me, then not only did they sin against me, their sin was actually against God himself, right? Ninth commandment? Now, now this eventually starts to feel like a riddle, doesn't it? Because remember, last week we talked about how God is king or, or sovereign over all that he has created, that, that he has the final and complete authority over absolutely everything. And if that's true, well, then it also must be true that he didn't intervene to stop this from happening to me, to stop them from doing this to me. Why? Why? How many times do we find ourselves asking these kinds of questions in our lives? Maybe it's, it's over a job or a relationship or, or an accident or a tragedy or, or, or a health crisis or when we come face to face with the reality of death through losing a loved one. Pretty much any time we face challenges, struggles, or difficulty in our lives, we too can often find ourselves wanting to know why. 
why is this happening to me? Or, or, or why is this, this happening to someone I love? Or, or why is this happening in the world? Because if God really is good and God really does love us, then how is it that oftentimes it, it sure doesn't really feel or seem like it? Well, as we continue on our journey through the Lord's Prayer or, or the Disciples' Prayer, this very thing is what we're going to be exploring together today. Because when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what are we really saying to God and what are we really asking him to do? And, and furthermore, how do we know if it's actually happening in our lives and in our world, when again, we, we oftentimes feel like the exact opposite of God's will or what God, God wants is happening. But before we get going here, let me, let me just pray for us first. Father, thank you for bringing us together. We know that in the midst of a, of a season of this global pandemic, Lord, you still are very much at work. And so even though we have change the way that we do things, Lord. We know that you have not changed who you are. So we thank you for being able to gather us together, even if we're spread apart. We know that it is by the power of your Holy Spirit that you unite the body of Christ together. And so we just pray in the challenges that we face in this world today, that you intervene and that your will be done in mighty ways like we've never experienced before. Come by your Holy Spirit and touch our hearts and change our lives in this moment now that we have together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been working through the Lord's Prayer phrase by phrase over these last several weeks, I hope you've noticed that so far, all of these things have to do with asking God to deliver something really big, so, something way outside of just ourselves and way beyond our capabilities to even really fully comprehend. We've talked first about approaching God as children come to their loving father. And then we explored what it means to hallow God's name or to, to, to make God's name holy and to have God make his name holy in and through us so that he may be glorified. And then we also talked last week about how God is our king and, and, and how we want him to be king and ruler of our life in such a way that his perfect kingdom continues to come here on earth. And so today we're going to continue with your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And again, like the previous weeks, this is an imperative. This is a request uh, where we're asking God to bring about something. It's not just a statement of surrender or, or saying something like, okay, look, we get it. You know, your, your will is bigger and your will can beat up our will and that's just the end of it. We get it. It's more than that. It, it's also asking God to deliver in ways that are surprisingly counterintuitive to our thinking. And so I think that it's important for me to kind of make that disclaimer here. Uh, you should expect that, that this will be a little bit jarring, if not shocking, because it's not really all about or how we relate to God, at least in times when things are going well for us. But when we face times of struggle and despair, which of course we all do, I hope that this message today will bring freedom and nourishment to our troubled 
souls, especially in those times. Maybe that time is right now for you. But when we think about the will of God, the will of God is, is often discussed, but it's even more often misunderstood. And, and, and so we may hear things or, or even say things or talk about things like, I, I, I'm hope, I hope I'm living in God's will, or, well, I, I hope I'm not outside of God's will. Or, or maybe we ask the question like, well, I wonder what God's will is for my life or for my job or for my relationship. We do all kinds of things like that, and we, and we do it because deep down, we, we tend to believe that when things are going well in our lives, that we must be living in God's will, and, and, and that God is happy with us. And that's the evidence that we have. Which, of course, means that the reverse must also then be true. If, if things aren't going well then we must have sort of slipped or fallen outside of God's will. And, and now it's, it's up to us. We've got to find our way back into it. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying, because I'm not for a moment suggesting that we can't and don't make really bad choices. We all make bad choices in one way or another. And, and when we do, there are consequences, and they're often very harsh. We have to live in that reality. But my, my point is that it's tempting for, for us to just kind of conclude that when we pray, your will be done, that all we really mean is, is that we need God to intervene and get us going back on the right track again. You know, so it's like God to come and fix something that we broke. But I would propose to you this today. God is much bigger than we tend to think he is. And therefore, his will is much more expansive. Than, and it's about much more than just, just our circumstances. Now, remember last week, we talked about how God is sovereign and therefore has authority over all things. He's the king. He has authority over everything. If he has authority over everything, then... He doesn't really need our prayers or our endorsement or our approval in order for his will to be done because God's will is done with or without us. Let that sink in for a minute. God's will is done with or without us because that should start to make us squirm a little bit because it sounds like one of the things we're saying is that, well, now, wait a minute. If God has authority over everything and we know and have experienced that bad things often happen to us and to others in the world, then part of God's will must be for bad things to happen. But the truth is that God does not want or will for us to sin or for us to do evil against others or for others to do evil and sin against us. But in this fallen world, where sin runs rampant, we continue to make big messes one way or another. But even then, God makes our messes into majesty. God makes our messes into majesty. He does this for his glory. And, and now that's not an encouragement for, for us to, to just go out and screw things up because it doesn't matter and God will just fix it anyway. No, what, what scripture shows us over and over again is that 
while God is not responsible for our struggles, he is responsible in our struggles. God takes our bad circumstances and in the midst of them, he works his will to bring him glory and to accomplish his purposes. And this is true, by the way, whether or not things work out the way we'd hope for, the way we want, God is still at work. And so to understand this a little bit better, we're going to take a look at the story of Joseph. Now, you may be familiar. Joseph's story is, is told in a lot of different ways, Disney movies, everything else. But Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And Jacob is also known as Israel. So don't, don't get confused by this. But Joseph was his father's favorite of all of the sons. And his father, Jacob, did not try to hide this fact. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 37. We're going to be in Genesis 37. And now Genesis is all the way at the beginning of the Bible. And so uh, in chapter 37, we see this story begin about the life of Joseph. And that continues all the way through to chapter 50, which is all the way at the end of Genesis. So it's, it's too long for us to read all of it together right now, but, but you should make the time. You owe it to yourself to make the time to sit down and read this whole thing because I believe it's a wonderful way for us to see the will of God in action throughout the entire thing. But for now, for what we're going to be talking about today, let's start at Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, also known as Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in old age and he made an ornate robe for him. Sometimes other translations say a coat of many colors. Uh, movies are made about this. You know, you get it. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And so Joseph was a young man, but because he was his father's favorite, his, his father had put him in charge as, as the overseer of this whole family shepherding operation. Well, there's strike one. And then on top of that, Jacob gave Joseph a special garment or a cloak that nobody else had. None of the other brothers got it. Well, strike two. And to top it off, Joseph then gives a bad report about his brothers to his father. Well, there's strike three, because you kind of know the saying, right? Uh, snitches get stitches. Something had to be done about this Joseph guy. And so the brothers cooked up a plan to rid themselves of Joseph entirely. But they decided, you know, well, we can't just, I mean, we can't just kill him. I mean, after all, he is our brother. So, so they, they came up with a much more compassionate plan instead. They sold him into slavery for 20 shekels of silver and then just told his father that he'd been killed by a wild animal. Go team compassion, right? So Joseph is taken into Egypt where he has many ups and downs, but, but he eventually, through all that, he eventually earns so much favor with the Egyptian Pharaoh that he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. And he's basically put in charge of everything in Egypt. 
the, the clincher, the thing that really made this happen was that Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and had this prophecy that uh, there was a coming famine, a long drought and a famine, and it was coming. So, so Joseph had come up with a plan to effectively store grain during the good years so that when the famine hit, the people would still have plenty of food. Well, the, the famine did hit. And, and Egypt did have plenty of food. But you know who didn't have any food? Jacob and the 11 other sons, all of Joseph's brothers and his family. They had no food. And so the brothers came begging for help. Isn't this interesting? And Joseph is the one who saves them. Joseph, even though they didn't recognize him at first, the one that they had so unbelievably wronged became the very one who rescued and saved them. Listen to what Joseph says in chapter 45, verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save the lives that God sent me ahead of you to save lives. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of Egypt. And so again, I think we have to ask the question, well, wh whose will was done here? Whose will was done? Because the brothers clearly and obviously set out to do Joseph harm. They, they chose to act out in evil ways against him. And, and that evil decision put him through great sorrow and, and, and trials and pain and suffering and, and even misery. But somehow, even through all that, all, through all of that mess, Joseph caught a glimpse of an even bigger plan unfolding. Joseph, Joseph somehow saw God's will working in and through his hardships in surprising and unexpected ways. This, this is amazing. And so as, as Joseph simply puts it to his brothers in chapter 50, this is in verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. But if you look at the original Hebrew, it, it actually states it even more strongly. It, it says something like, well, you meant or you planned evil against me, but God planned it for good. God planned it for good. Well, in other words... And this is critical to understand because if, if we miss this, if we get this wrong, then, then we miss the whole thing. The very same God who hates sin and who hates evil still actively works in and through it in order to accomplish his will. He's still at work even in sin and even in evil. And so it's crucial for us to know this because we have to remember that we have a God 
who is both devastated by and, and shares in our pain and suffering with us, who cries with us when our hearts are broken. And, and yet, at the very same time, we have a God who is also working in and even planning in those very same circumstances in order to bring forth his kingdom here on earth and for his glory. And our minds just don't really want to accept that this is true because we don't really do well with holding these two things in tension. It, it's like a paradox. We, we assume that, well, it, it must be one way or the other. It's got to be one or the other. And that's true especially because we don't really see how our suffering or, or, or any suffering could possibly bring about anything good to us, much less anyone else. And even Jesus, you know, Jesus, fully God, God in the flesh, but fully human, even Jesus was no stranger to this same tension. On the, on the night that he was going to be arrested, Jesus prayed, it's recorded in Luke chapter 22, Luke 22, verse 42. Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew what was coming. And he was basically asking, look, is there any way out of this? Is there any other way that God could have his will be accomplished. Matter of fact, he was so distressed about this that he started sweating drops of blood just, just thinking and praying about it. But as he said, not my will, but yours be done. Because Jesus knew that the pain, the suffering, and, and that his very death itself would be precisely what would bring salvation to many more. And so even though it was, it was sin itself, it was sin itself, the very rejection of God in the flesh that nailed an innocent Jesus to that cross. It, it was through that very cross that God's will to redeem and restore all that has been lost was accomplished. It was accomplished through Jesus. And so as followers of Jesus, he he told us, us as his disciples, his followers, that we should also expect trouble in this world just because we're following him, just because we're his followers. He told us we should expect that we will be rejected and we should expect that we will suffer for his name because the world will continue to reject him. But he also promised that he would never leave or abandon us in our times of challenge or, or struggle uh, or, or strife. And that we should take heart in knowing that he's, he's already overcome all of what causes us to despair, even death itself. All of it has been swallowed up in the miracle of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We hold that to be true. We believe that to be true in faith right now, right now, as we still live in this time of, of already and not yet. And we keep our eyes focused forward as we look to the fulfillment, one day, the fulfillment of God's kingdom where God's will is perfectly and fully realized on earth as it is in heaven. 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're asking God to bring heaven to earth. But how do we go about living in light of the reality that that we still do experience and face hardships and struggles and, and challenges in our lives? All of us do. And so I want to give us three keys to understanding I hope this was helpful, but understanding a little bit more about God's will and how we are to live in light of that. And so the first thing, first thing we need to remember is we've got to stop looking for God in all the wrong places. We've got to stop looking for God in all the wrong places. When we're faced with struggle, again, the natural temptation is to obsess over asking why. Why this? Why that? Why is this happening? Why is God upset with me? And so we, we just we start again thinking wrongly that, well, if we can just somehow nail down what went wrong or, or maybe how we screwed up, well, then we can go about fixing it. But here's the thing. Looking for God down that road leads only to despair and desperation. And the most terrifying part about all of that is if we go looking to try to find God and get answers down that road, we hear nothing. God remains totally silent. Because he does not want to be found in this way. In fact, he won't be found in this way, no matter how hard we look and how badly we want those answers. Remember last week we talked a bit about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Well, in that garden, God put two special trees. The tree of life, God explained, that's where he wants to be found. That's where he wanted to meet with his people. He said, meet me at this tree. But the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said, you need to avoid that. There was a big warning. Do not go looking for me there. But they did. And when they went looking, they found nothing but sin and evil and death, which was then unleashed on the world. And we still live in those consequences today. So the same is true for us now. When we go looking for God where he doesn't want to be found, it only leads us into more despair and more devastation. But why? What's well, a terrifying thing when you're asking God for something and God remains silent? That is terrifying. So where then does God want to meet us? If it's not in those why questions, trying to figure out the mind of God and the mystery of God, then where can we find God where he wants to be found and where he will speak and say something to us? Now, it's in his word. God wants to be found in his word. He wants to be found in his word. His word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is what and who gives us life sustains us. It gives us life. And it's through God's word that he continues to drive us toward what we actually need more than anything else. Jesus. When we finally come to realize 
that, that trying to know God's mind and trying to solve all these mysteries is something that we can't ever do. There's something we can't ever comprehend and that God doesn't want us anywhere near trying to figure that out. Then instead, we should immediately turn and run, run to the open arms of Jesus because Jesus has a lot to say to us. And there are lots of ways that we can discover what that is. We, we can read, study, or, or even listen. We can listen to the Bible. Maybe we should do that instead of getting so involved in social media and other things like that. We can also get into a small group of people and we can, we can go deeper together and learn more about who Jesus is and what he has to say to us. And then we can continue that journey by living out God's word in the community with other people in the world around us. But just please don't think that coming to church once a week is all there is. Because that's not the kind of relationship that God wants to have with you. That, that's more like the relationship I have with my dentist. You know, I sit down and, and the guy says, well, how often do you floss, Bob? And I always look and say, well, when was the last time I was here? That's not the kind of relationship God wants with us. In order for us to truly get to know Jesus and to be growing in relationship with him, then we find him in God's word. We discover who he is and who we are in him through God's word. Not, not in dead letters in a book. Don't think of it like that. We sometimes get obsessed with that. The power of God's Holy Spirit is who brings these words to life. We have to pray for the illumination and the guidance of God's Holy Spirit because that's who brings God's word to life, both individually and in community. When we do this together and when we trust his son, Jesus, with every detail of our lives, then we start to understand more about what God's will is for us. The second key is that we need to surrender the outcome. Surrender the outcome. God's got this. God's got this. I know that's easier said than done, but God does have this. We can, we can trust him even when we don't understand him. And it's, I think, at least for me, it's a tremendous relief to know that God is so big. There's nothing we could ever do to get outside of his will. We just simply don't have that much power. Not even for a moment. God's will is inescapable. Remember, he is sovereign. He is king over all, all the time. And while that may sound somewhat alarming, it's, this is actually really good news. Because it means that no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've fallen short, no matter how many times you did something that you shouldn't have done, or you didn't do something that you should have done, you are never, ever, not ever, beyond God's reach. When Adam and Eve screwed up, their immediate reaction was to try to hide from God. They thought their sin was just too much. So they tried to hide from God, but God found them right away. It wasn't even a, a good game of hide and seek. God knew exactly where they were. Because his will for us is to know him and to trust him with absolutely everything. Even when our circumstances don't work out the way that we wanted or the way that we hoped, we've got to surrender our short-term outlook in favor of God's long-term promises. 
we surrender our short-term outlook for God's long-term promises. And we trust and believe that those are true. God is faithful. And God has bigger plans than we can possibly understand or comprehend. And Joseph got a chance, at least, to see a little glimpse of how God's bigger plan was working in and through the midst of his struggles and challenges. And sometimes we have that opportunity, too. But the truth is that sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't see that bigger picture, at least not in our lifetime anyway. But even if we don't see it at all, we can be confident that everything, absolutely everything, is working together to glorify God and to bring forth His good and perfect kingdom here on earth. And finally... The third key in understanding just at least a little bit more about God's will today is that God doesn't need our deeds. God doesn't need our good deeds, but our neighbors do. God doesn't need our deeds, but our neighbors do. And, and what we mean by that is when we find God in his word, then we start to realize that God's mission is, is much bigger than just our own selves. It's much bigger than us. And when we surrender the outcome of our struggles to God and say, God, I trust you, no matter what happens, I trust you. And we believe that we can't ever slip outside of his will, no matter what we've done, that we can't get that far away from God that he can't find us. Then that's when we are finally, truly, and completely free. We're free to live in ways that are useful. Finally, we become useful to all of our neighbors in this lost and broken world. And it's when we have this kind of, of liberating relationship with Jesus that we then become his ambassadors. And we, we go out and we represent him. And we continue to lead more and more people back to him. We become uh, witnesses to God's goodness and to his faithfulness. And, and we realize that even in the midst of our struggles and our challenges, all of it, everything, all are part of God's unthwartable will to reach others for his glory. And so therefore praying your will be done is much bigger than us just asking for something for ourselves. We're asking that God's will be done on earth just like it is in heaven where there is no evil. There is no hurt. There is no pain, no injustice, no planning and scheming to manipulate others, no sin, no death, no devil, no more tears. We want that here. So let's continue to pray together that God's will be done in and through us in every circumstance and in every situation so that our lives will glorify and honor him and do so in a way that leads others into a life-saving, death-destroying, sin-sabotaging relationship with the Savior of all, Jesus. Your will be done. Amen.